For Advent reading today, we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. We'll pick up where we left off last week, beginning in Luke 1, verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The story of God opening the womb of a barren woman uh, is something we talked about last week, about how this is a story that shows up over and over throughout redemptive history, when he gives uh, a woman a child of promise. That's something that we see throughout Scripture. But here we see something that is new. It is different. The angel Gabriel shows up once again. Uh, And it's interesting, uh, probably most of us know the character of the angel of Gabriel, right? We we know Gabriel the angel, right? His, His name is one that is familiar to us as a character. And he seems to be a major figure or character in our minds. And he is. I mean, he is obviously incredibly important. Uh, But Gabriel is only mentioned uh, four times in all of Scripture. Maybe he's alluded to in other places, but he's only named four times. There's only four times we're told of the angel Gabriel showing up to somebody. Two of them we've now read, right? One of them is here. One of them was to uh, Zechariah in the temple. Other than that... uh, the main place that Gabriel shows up is to the prophet Daniel. He shows up in the book of Daniel, mentioned two times there as well. 
when he speaks to Daniel and, and explains to him what is going to happen in the future with the 70 weeks that Daniel learns of, the maybe well-known but little understood 70 weeks. And we're not going to delve deeply into that now, but it's, this is only to say that when we see Gabriel showing up again all of a sudden throughout this story, one of the things we should be thinking is if he's, he's showing up just like he did before, maybe this has to do with the fulfillment of those things that were spoken to Daniel. Maybe this has to do with, with the soon coming of the Ancient of Days. Like we saw with John the Baptist, all of redemptive history and all of prophecy, everything is focusing in. It's all kind of coming together. Everything is aligning to show us the importance of Christ. He is the fulfillment of it all. And he's coming uh, following John the Baptist. And even here, we were told that, you know, the angel Gabriel comes in the sixth month. That's important. It's the sixth month. The sixth month of what? It's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Why is that important? Well, any time we think of the number six, uh, we, we should think of the, the work of God. And we should think of what comes after the sixth, right? The seventh, the, the, the completion, the, the finishing of all things, right? The seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, of, of fulfillment. And so there's supposed to be in our minds, even when we just read something as simple as that, there's a sense of anticipation, right? The, the seventh is coming. John is already in the womb preparing the way for Jesus, the one who will bring true rest. John was like Moses in that way, a man of the wilderness who prepared the way for Joshua or Jesus. He was preparing the way for the one that would bring the people to their final Sabbath rest. It would bring a completion to the work of God, would bring them into the land of promise. So that brings us seven words in to the text we read. <laughs> That's as far as that brings us. And we, we don't have time to cover it all. It's one of the beauties of being able to return to this story time and time again. But here we have that story of Mary who is a virgin, this new work of God, pointed to in the, the giving of a child of promise to a barren woman, and yet something even more spectacular. And this is going to be no ordinary son. Right? He does not come by ordinary means. He is distinct. He is called holy. This is the one. right? The one that, that everybody has been preparing for. The one that all of the prophets have been speaking about. The true child of promise. The great one. The son of the most high, it says. The Davidic king. The one who Gabriel says will have a kingdom that never ends. Now Mary asks, you know, how is this to happen? How, how can this be? But even here, she shows in many ways, stronger faith than even Zechariah, the priest, showed. Right? How will this come about? Well, she's told by the working 
of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will come upon her. And so the child will be the son of God, not simply the son of man. Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, you know, coming out of the fact that she had been barren, becomes a, a testimony to Mary. It becomes a kind of confirmation, right? Gabriel tells her, look, even you're going to have a confirmation of my word by the fact that Elizabeth herself, who has been barren, is, is now in the sixth month of her pregnancy, which is why we're then told that Mary leaves in haste, right? She she wants to go find out, is, is this true? Could this be? So she goes, and even in the womb, John responds to the presence of Jesus. He leaps for joy in the womb, dancing, in a sense, in the presence of God, much like David did. So as you read this, as you hear these words, there's this sense of you know, sober anticipation and excitement. Everything's aligning. The, the stars are aligning, so to speak. Everything's coming together. All the threads of the, the narrative of Scripture that everybody's been trying to figure out and waiting for and looking for the fulfillment of all of these things, all of it is coming together. Everything that was promised, all of the types and the shadows, all of it is giving way to the substance, to the reality. The long-awaited child is going to be born, the one who will bring the true fulfillment of all of these promises, and will bring true rest to the people of God. Well, we also continue today in our reading of the Lord's Prayer. If you want to read with me, uh, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading verse 9 through verse 15. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses this is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Of all the lines or petitions in the Lord's Prayer, have you ever thought about why this is the only one, that is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, this is the only one that Jesus then explains more. It's the only one that has a little explanation at the end, at least in the Sermon on the Mount. Why does Jesus do that? Why is this the one that he goes on to say more about? I think it's because uh, this particular petition, again, we're focusing on forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It places a kind of obligation on you that is the kind of obligation that you very often want to get out of. It's the kind of thing we don't necessarily like to hear. Everything else could be construed in a way that it's just great for us, right? It's just 
good. And so is this, but it might not always sound that way. But, you know, when we pray, Lord, give me the bread, right, the things that I need, right, that's great, right? That's just, God's just going to give me something, right? Lord, deliver me from evil. That sounds pretty unobjectionably good. But when we pray, and also, Lord, forgive me as far as I'm willing to forgive others, all of a sudden, we kind of want to slow down, maybe. What do you mean, as I forgive others, as I have forgiven? Right? What does that have to do with my prayer? I thought this was between me and God. <laughs> right? I didn't want to bring others into this. But he does. It's one thing to ask God for forgiveness. It's another to say, God, forgive me, just like I've forgiven the father that abandoned me. Lord, forgive me in the way that I'm willing to forgive the, the wayward child that's been so dishonorable or shameful toward me. Lord, forgive me in the way that I have also forgiven those who have harmed me. Right, all of a sudden, that seems like it can get a little bit more personal in a way. Of course, the whole of the Lord's Prayer truly is that way. But this really takes on that kind of weight. I think that's why Jesus explains it more. Forgiving others is one of those things that we often want to get out of. We want to explain away. We want to get away from it. The Apostle Peter seems to do this when he asked Jesus, when my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive him? As often as seven times? And it sounds great, except he was just probably looking for an out. He's asking, at what point do I get to stop forgiving someone else? And if you are willing to admit it, you often probably feel about the same way. At what point do I get to stop? At what point do I get to finally withhold forgiveness? If you're honest, you, you could probably admit that very often you want the revenge, right? You want justice to be done in your eyes. When someone owes you something, you want to be paid what they owe you. But Jesus teaches you to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And in teaching you to pray this way, Jesus is giving you the opportunity to ask God for forgiveness and to take part in the privilege of forgiving others. He's giving you both the opportunity to be forgiven and to forgive. Jesus presents here this opportunity that you have to receive God's forgiveness, to be forgiven, that you can approach God and ask him to forgive you. And that means at least a few different things. First, it means that you're in need of forgiveness. You're in need of being forgiven. And we're told by Christ that what needs to be forgiven is debts. This economic term of debt is used to illustrate the nature of your sin against God. And Jesus, he goes on to, you know, call uh, these debts trespasses. 
In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus shares uh, this same prayer, he uses the word sins. So we know this is talking specifically about sin, but he uses the language of debt. Why? In what way is your sin like debt? Well, on the one hand, it's because you owe obedience to God. You are obligated to others uh, to pay what you owe, right? To pay what is their due. We're told in Scripture there are those that you owe honor to, right? There are those you owe taxes to. There's, there's certain duties that you owe that, that are due someone else, whether it be uh, a friend, a child, a spouse. It's something you owe as a citizen, right? In your various relationships, there are ways that you, you owe others something of your duty. But as God's creatures, as someone who is made for him and by him and in his image, you owe him total obedience and allegiance. You owe him a life of obedience because you're his creature. You're for him, right? He made you. You belong to him. Where you're not living as he wants then you're in that way not paying what you owe. You're not paying what he is due, what is rightfully his. You're not fulfilling the obligation on your life. That's on the one hand what you owe to God, but then on the other hand, when you, when you do not meet that obligation, you now, in a sense, have taken on a new level of debt. You're now due a punishment for those ways that you failed to pay the debt that you owe. There's now a penalty attached to what you already owed. Still owe a life of obedience, totally, perfectly, and now there's a penalty on top of that. Right? There's a judgment now against you that stands against you because you haven't paid what you owe. What good news then that Jesus Christ came preaching forgiveness a debt jubilee, right? A time when all debts would be wiped away. This is what he came preaching, right? Blessed are the feet of him who brings good news. Jesus came preaching forgiveness. He came in order to tell those who would to submit to him by faith that your sins are forgiven. Think of all the times that he speaks that to people. The good news of the gospel is that your debt can be forgiven, that you owe, truly owe, a debt, but it can be fully paid, and that Jesus Christ has covered your debt freely. He has both paid the, the life of obedience that you owed as a man, right, living that life of obedience totally, perfectly, so that the debt that you owed is a creature made by God, made by the Creator, but He's also paid the punishment, the penalty that you owed as a sinner. On both accounts, He is totally covered. Now, the fact that Jesus still teaches you to pray this means, secondly, that even after you've truly been forgiven, you'll still continue to need to ask for forgiveness. Right? It's true that you can call out to God for the, 
the pardon of your debts to him. And in the name of Jesus Christ, he will forgive you completely. No strings attached. This is the free grace of God. You no longer have to be uh, in the position of a slave who's constantly trying to work off the debt that's been accumulated, but never actually able to get free of it. Never actually able to get to the point where it is paid. You just keep accumulating. Rather, you've been set free. Jesus says, you are no longer slaves. You're, you're a friend. More than that, you're an adopted child of the king who paid your debt. So if those things are true, which they are, for those of you who are in Christ, then why keep praying to be forgiven? Well, it's not out of a, a fear of punishment any longer, right? That's the reaction of a slave. Jesus says, you're not slave. You're not continuing to ask forgiveness like you just have to constantly come back groveling before God because what if he changes his mind you ask forgiveness in order to find reconciliation with God your father remember this prayer is for believers it's for you as a child of God right as one who has been brought into his family you pray our father right that's not something that is to be spoken by somebody who is not truly a child of God. So this prayer is about reconciliation with the Father. It's not a prayer to make God your Father. It's a prayer for those who know that they already have Him as a Father. You're not looking for forgiveness in the sense that you're, you're looking to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're asking for the kind of forgiveness that a child asks his father, who he knows loves him, even though he messed up. It's about reconciliation with God. It's about your relationship to him. It's about maintaining a good relationship to him, right? Being in good standing with him, removing any of those things that would block your ability to commune with him. A son might not question uh, whether he is truly uh, a child of his father, but when he fails to do what his dad asked him to do, and his father's angry or disappointed, what, what does he need to do? Well, he, he has to come to his father and repent, right? It's, dad, I'm sorry. Right, I, really, I really messed up this time. Will you forgive me? Asking God for forgiveness in this way is an acknowledgement of your continued repentance and your continued faith that God will forgive you as you draw near to him and ask for his forgiveness. It's the evidence of a contrite heart and of your knowledge that God is the kind of God that forgives. That he's not waiting around to uh, cast you out Right? As soon as you mess up, as soon as you, you know, misstep, finally he gets to get rid of you. No, when you come to God asking his forgiveness, you know he's the kind of God that forgives. At the same time, you know that God is holy. Right? That he will not stand your sin forever. So you have debts, you have sins, and you have the opportunity then 
by the grace of God to confess those things to God, right? To be assured once again of the total forgiveness that he has for you in Christ. Now, just as being a a creature of God obligates you to a life of obedience, so being a son of God obligates you to a life of forgiveness. There's a condition placed on the one who asks for forgiveness in this ongoing way, right? To have a full and reconciled relationship to God. There's there's a condition placed on them. If you want to be in good standing with God, Jesus says that you also must forgive like God has forgiven you. Look again at this kind of explanation that comes in verse 14. For because if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This added explanation uh, makes it clear that what's being said in verse 12 has to do with, with this obligation put upon you that you must forgive, right? When it says as we also have forgiven our debtors that comes with a that comes with a a call to obedience you are coming to god to be reconciled to him in your day-to-day life not not again groveling because you're worried that you have no standing before him no you obviously have standing before him you're praying to him as your father no you do this in order to maintain the closeness that you have to him. Right? And if you are forgiving others of their sins against you, their spiritual debts that they owe to you, uh, then God says, I will hear, I'll listen when you pray. He'll listen when you pray and ask forgiveness of your debt. And he will receive that prayer. He will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others their sins, it says God won't forgive you. Right? Your father won't accept your request for mercy until you're willing to be a conduit of that mercy to others. How can God put a condition on his forgiveness? Right? I thought this was free grace. I thought this was, was something that God loves to do. Right? How can he do that? Well, like we've said, it's it's not a condition in the sense that it's a total condition. Right? This isn't saying, hey, if you have ever not forgiven someone exactly right, then God will never listen to you. Right? He will never hear you. Well, then we're all out. That's not quite what it's saying. It's not as though God is saying that there's no forgiveness available to you unless you have first been perfect. That wouldn't, that wouldn't make sense. That's not what he says. But the heart that is contrite and open to being forgiven, the heart that has humbled itself before God and said, God, I need your forgiveness, that is a heart that is also open to forgiving others. Right? The, the kind of repentance and the kind of humbling of yourself that, that God desires, when you open your heart, so to speak, in that way, that openness is not just it's not just me and God, right? It, at the same time, that is being willing to open your heart toward others. 
The heart that's open to be forgiven is the heart that's open to forgiving others. For, forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Jesus tells a story that illustrates this in Matthew 18. It's a story you've probably heard, but I do want to read it. And I'll read it in its entirety. This is Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. It says this, And Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a, just a, an, ex, an unbelievable amount, right? This is, a, this is an amount that could never be paid off. That's the idea. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He doesn't even do what the servant says. The servant says, trust me, I'll pay you. He knows that's not true and he just forgives him. He forgives the debt completely. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This is, this is like a nickel. I mean, it's nothing, right? It, it, it is nothing. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe, right? You need to pay me, right? Compared to his debt, it's nothing. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't nothing, nothing. It was maybe a day's wage or something to that, like that. I mean, it was, a, it was enough that it, it mattered to him. He would feel it. But compared to the debt that he owed, it's nothing. Compared to the debt that he owed, it's, it is a nickel. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A contrite heart that truly confesses sin, that truly pleads for forgiveness, is the kind of heart that is then uh, open to others. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Right? God is more than willing to forgive you if you draw near to him with true sorrow for your sin and plead for mercy in the name of Christ. But to then turn right, and refuse to forgive others is to refuse the forgiveness of God. It is to refuse the forgiveness that he offers. His forgiveness is given in part 
so that it might be given to others. Right? His mercy is given to you in part so that you will be merciful. If you refuse to do that, then he will not give you his mercy. Just as God has forgiven you, so also you must forgive one another. So congregation of Christ, what a privilege you have in the forgiveness of God and in forgiving others as you have been forgiven. It would be dangerous to hear these words from Christ uh, as strictly just a demand. There's a demand here. There's an obligation here. There's a true condition. But you should hear in it the grace and the privilege that these words hold out to you. When God enables you to open your heart in forgiveness, when he frees you from the sin of others, he also gives you greater confidence in your prayers for forgiveness. When you've been enabled by the mercy of God to show mercy to others, to not hold others' sins against them, to forgive them from the heart, and to seek to be reconciled, that when you pray to God and you ask Him to forgive you, you can be bold. That's what this prayer shows us. A kind of boldness before God. Lord, look how even I have forgiven. I who am so much less merciful and gracious than you are. Who only reflects the tiniest portion of your kindness and generosity of spirit. And if I have forgiven those that have sinned against me. Won't you in your perfect mercy forgive me once again? Won't you remove the continuing presence of sin that your presence might be evident in me again? Right? What a privilege that is. What a privilege you have been given that you could in a way be like your Father in heaven forgiving the sins of others. Now, of course, you're not removing their sin from them. Right? You're not forgiving someone their iniquity, their inborn sin. That's not something that you can do. But you have the opportunity to forgive those debts that you have against others. Right? The ways that they have sinned against you, that they have, that they have uh, transgressed against you. You have the opportunity. Maybe it's in the smallest way, but you have the opportunity to forgive that. And in so doing, become a conduit of the mercy of God. Right, to represent God in that way, you get to be like Him. What a privilege that in learning forgiveness, to be forgiving, in receiving that bold attestation to your faith in prayer, when you forgive others. What a privilege that is then, that you can more clearly see the heart of God. Remember when the Lord declared his name to Moses and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, some of us hear this declaration of who God is, about his character and nature, and we think, I don't know, isn't it a little harsh of him not to clear the guilty? 
right? It says he visits the iniquity of fathers to the children's children. But that totally misses how incredibly qualified God is when he talks about his anger only to the third and the fourth generation, which means that, that God is limiting the effects of your sin. He's limiting the effects of your inborn sin, your iniquity and your transgressions against him breaking his law and your sins where you do not measure up to what he has called you to. He limits the power of sin. He limits what sin can do. But he shows steadfast love to thousands. How does he show it, right? How, how does he show that love? Forgiving iniquity and sin and transgressions, forgiving all of it. The only reason that we would ever hear words like this or conditions like this in the Lord's Prayer and think negatively of it is, is because we are corrupt, right? because we're unforgiving, because we're bitter and resentful people that are yet in need of the forgiveness of God. Right? The point of all of this is how expansive the forgiveness and mercy of God is. And you get a front row seat of that every time you forgive others. Right? Every time somebody sins against you and you can forgive them from the heart, you get to see the mercy of God in action. And you, as you get to pray to God out of a forgiving spirit, as one who stands completely forgiven, knowing what a great debt you have already been forgiven, you get to pray to God out of a contrite spirit, knowing that he listens, that he hears you, that you are reconciled to him, and that you will receive his approval. What a privilege it is to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would forgive us. We do confess that we have been unmerciful. We do confess that we have been bitter and resentful toward others. We do confess that there are times that although you have been so merciful to us, we hold even the smallest of sins against others. So we pray, God, forgive us. Forgive us of this. And we pray with boldness knowing and seeing how you have already worked in us, softening our hearts toward others, giving us a supernatural love toward those who have sinned against us. And so we pray boldly, knowing that you're at work, knowing that you love to forgive. We pray, God, even as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, that you would remind us again of the forgiveness that we have in the death of Christ and the total reconciliation that you've given us and that you would make us ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of your grace, reconciling with others because of what you have done. We pray this in his name, in Christ's name. Amen.